Welcome to the LSQ Podcast. Our church began in April of 2017, and our vision is to joyfully live as reflections of God's love together in the city. This podcast will primarily feature sermons from Sunday worship and the occasional bonus content. We hope you'll subscribe. Today's reading is from Exodus 3, 10 through 15, and 4, 1 through 17. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name you shall call me from generation to generation. Moses answered, What if they do not believe me or listen to me and say, The Lord did not appear to you? Then the Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. The Lord said, Throw it on the ground. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a snake, and he ran from it. Then the Lord said to him, Reach out your hand and take it by the tail. So Moses reached out and took hold of the snake, and it turned back into a staff in his hand. This, said the Lord, is so that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Then the Lord said, Put your hand inside your cloak. So Moses put his hand into his cloak, and when he took it out, the skin was leprous. It had become white as snow. Now put it back into your cloak, he said. So Moses put his hand back into his cloak. And when he took it out, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. Then the Lord said, If they do not believe you or pay attention to the first sign, they may believe the second. But if they do not believe these two signs or listen to you, take some water from the Nile and pour it onto the dry ground. The water you take from the river will become blood on the ground. Moses said to the Lord, Pardon your servant, Lord. I have never been eloquent, neither in the past nor since you have spoken to your servant. I am slow of speech and tongue. The Lord said to him, Who gave human beings their mouths? Who makes them deaf or mute? Who gives them sight or makes them blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. But Moses said, Pardon your servant, Lord. Please send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses, and he said, What about your brother, Aaron the Levite? I know he can speak well. He is already on his way to meet you, and he will be glad to see you. You shall speak to him and put words in his mouth. I will help both of you speak and will teach you what to do. He will speak to the people for you, and it will be as if he were your mouth and as if you were God to him. But take this staff in your hand so you can perform the signs with it. The word of the Lord.
Good morning, and welcome again to Redeemer Lincoln Square. As we like to say around here, we value questions and those who ask them, so there's that phone number in your bulletin, and we are happy for you to text in questions. We'll deal with them after the service. If you're online, there should be a number that will eventually come on the screen, so keep record of your questions. Last week, we started a new series on the book of Exodus because we wanted to look at the story of freedom back then to see how it might impact the story of freedom that we might have for ourselves today. And what we saw last week is that by Exodus 3, Moses is told by God, here's what I'm going to do to save. Here's what I'm going to do to act in creation. And the answer he gives is, I'm going to send you, Moses. And it is in verse 10, I am sending you. And I want to start today by saying that this is where a lot of New Yorkers get lost. New Yorkers get lost because... A lot of us live in parts of Manhattan that are what I would call expert culture spaces. That we are comfortable being sent out into areas where we feel like we are experts in. So if you're in the business world, you're, some of you are experts in the business world. If you're in law or medicine, you feel like you're an expert there. Maybe you're a mother or a father and you are an expert at keeping your children alive. Good for you. If you are potentially an expert in video games or at Netflix. You feel good about that. But the question I want to ask us today is this, what do we do when we are asked to, when we're being called to perform in an area that we do not feel like we're an expert in? Famed sociologist Philip Reif points out that there is a correlation with the rise of anxiety today with this nagging sensation, this nagging sense that we are not what we should be, that we could be and we need to be more than what we are. And therefore we become paralyzed knowing how little we know in all the areas that we're not experts in. In fact, I would argue that the internet age, the easiness of information has worsened our sense of self as we realize we know what we don't know. And therefore... We sit around and we say, I can't share my faith because I don't have all the questions to the, I don't have all the, I don't have all the answers to the questions people are going to ask me. I can't serve, I can't go and do mercy because I don't even know what the problems really are. And even if I did, I don't know where to start. I've been in ministry for a long time and I've seen this everywhere that everybody says, yes, I want to get together, I want to do community, I want to serve, I want to go out and do, and then we plan and we create it and nobody shows up. And this isn't just in the church, by the way. I used to be the class representative for my daughter's uh, secular school and for a couple years, and we would, everybody said, let's do stuff together. So let's, let's go and serve. Let's go do this stuff. So we would set the time, the place, the event, crickets. And the reason why is because the problem is inside all of us. Moses has this problem. Look at Moses. We saw last week he had been a shepherd for 40 years, So he felt good about leading sheep, but not necessarily leading people. He felt inadequate. He felt like he couldn't do it. And therefore, he has the same problem that we have. And so what I want us to do this morning is I want us to see how God answers this problem for Moses and for us. I want to see how Moses responds. I want to see how it actually relates to us. So we're going to break this passage down into three questions, and we'll see what it looks like to us. Three questions. Who am I? Who is he? 
and how is this a power? I'll say it again. Who am I? Who is he? And then how could this actually be a power in our lives? First, who am I? That is, look, turn in your text. That is the first statement, the first words out of Moses' mouth when he's told he's going to be sent. And at first you might think it's kind of like an all shucks moment. You're kind of like, oh, shucks. You know, gee willy, you know, gee willikers, maybe me. But as you move on, you realize that's not what's happening here. Because the next question out of his mouth in verse 13 is suppose they don't believe in you. And then the next question out of his mouth uh, in chapter 4 verse 1 is what if they don't believe in me or listen to me? And then in verse 10 in chapter 4, what if I'm not eloquent enough? And then finally, if you look at verse 13, it hits us what he's really at. He says, uh, please send someone else. What's happening? Here's what's happening. If God says go, and you say send somebody else, at some level, Moses is not trusting God's plan for him. Moses is not trusting God at some level. That's what's happening here. That's why he comes up with all these excuses. They won't believe in you. They won't believe in me. I'm not eloquent enough. Why am I not eloquent enough? Because I don't have the skill of eloquence. Why don't I have the skill? Because I'm not good enough. I'm not, I, I'm not an expert in it. Does that sound familiar at all? That's what we say too. It's the reason why you don't go out on mission. It's the reason why we don't go out and serve and do and tell. It's because at some level we don't trust God's plan for our lives. And we think, if I just knew a little bit more, if I, if I could just feel a little more confident, if I was a little more of an expert, and that's Moses too. But look, I mean, this whole second page is Moses being given expert stuff. He can turn uh, staff from a staff into a snake. He can turn water into blood. He can have power over illness. I mean, he clearly has more expertise in those areas than you and I do. And if you do have more, please show me. I think those would be great party tricks if you could do those things. He could, and yet it didn't help. Because why? Because at the end of the day, it wasn't because he felt like he had a lack of expertise. At the end of the day, it's that he didn't trust in the expertise of the Lord. I would argue that your problem and my problem is not our inadequacy. It's that we don't actually trust God's adequacy. When we say we can't go, when we say we're too tired or I'm too busy or I don't have enough time, which is, by the way, what, I'm, as a New Yorker, I know that those are, what we, those are the things we say. Or I'm too old or I'm too young or I'm not, I, I'm not talented enough or I'm not able enough. At some level, we are belittling and demeaning God's adequacy. Why do you think God actually decreases Gideon's army in the book of Judges? It's to show us that it's God who saves. Why do you think the Israelites were told to walk around the walls of Jericho, not to attack, for them to fall? It was so that we would see that it's God who actually saves. See, when God takes things away, we think, wait a second, you're, you're, you're less preparing me for the task at hand, when actually he's doing that to show us that all we need is Him. I would say your problem and my problem is not our inability, it's our view, our lack of our view of God's ability. And I want to, before we move on, I want to ask us, will we see this? Will we connect the dots in our life? Will we realize that the reason why we're feeling tired and rushed and we never feel like we know enough or have enough, at some level— the reason why we feel like we're not qualified enough 
is not because of your deficiency. It's because at some level, you, it's your view of God and his deficiency or lack of sufficiency. And so the question of who am I, which Moses asked, at some level is intricately related with the real question, which is who is he? That we know that at some level, who am I is going to be related to who is he? So fine, second point, who is he? Right? How does God solve Moses' anxiety? How does God solve our anxiety? How does God solve Moses' lack of trust in this passage? How does God solve our lack of trust in him? And what the text shows us is two things. Number one, the first thing, go back to the beginning of the text. When Moses says, who am I? The very next phrase out of God's mouth is, I will be with you. It's the first thing God gives him is I will be with you. Why? I want you to think about yourself for a second. Think about all the question marks that you have about yourself. What if I've sinned too much? I will be with you. What if I've screwed up like really, really bad? Like Moses was a murderer. God's answer is I will be with you. What if I feel like that I haven't done enough? I'm not enough, right? I don't have the time, talents, or treasures to offer. I will be with you. What if I'm not eloquent enough? I will help you speak as I will be with you. What if I'm scared? I will calm your fears and I will be with you, is what God keeps saying over and over and over again. This is what's so amazing. To every single question that you have about yourself in your life, to every insecurity at some level, God's answer to that is I will be with you. He fills those spaces with this one simple phrase. And so, yes, I would argue that Moses has too low a view of God, but isn't it interesting that God doesn't immediately say, all right, you have too low a view of me. Let me tell you who I am. Here's who I am. Instead, he begins with Moses and says, I'm going to go into those insecurities. I'm going to correct your view of yourself so that you can really know who I am. Because God knows this. As long as we run around and we get our main identity out of our mini-identities— what are our many identities? We all have so many different levels. You have an identity of being a man or a woman, a child, an adult, uh, a worker, a lover, a fighter. I mean, whatever, how you see yourself, if we are trying to get our identity from that and solely that, it's not going to be enough. It's only when you find your confidence and worth knowing that he is going to be there for you, that he is going to be with you, then the failure or success of all those other identities does, does not have the last say in your life. It does not affect your status. And let I me mean, be careful. I'm not saying identity doesn't matter. Of course it does. Moses, his gifts and his talents, his identity is used by God, clearly. But what God is saying here is, only when you make my identity in me, and that I am with you, foundational, will you be able to be complete? Will you be able to move out? Will you be able to handle life? Only then can you have real security. So let me try to be very blunt right now. Have you accepted God's acceptance for you? Have you? Have you really, have you really, I don't care what you believe in this room, have you accepted God's acceptance of you? Because I would argue that a lot of times we don't actually believe that. Maybe you, you aren't talented enough. Maybe you aren't loved enough. Maybe you aren't actually uh, smart enough. But if he is with you and you are with him and he will never leave you and you will never leave him, 
God is saying that's the foundational identity that you need that can never break and that won't shake. And that's what's being offered to us. And this is, what's, this is actually what's so amazing, so missing in our current culture. It's what's missing in our everyday lives. That's the first thing that's given to us. He will be with you. Now, second thing. At Redeemer Lincoln Square, we value questions and the people who ask them, which is why we hold a time of question and response, or Q&R, after worship on Sundays. It's an opportunity for anyone to text in questions and then process responses alongside our pastoral team and other members of our church community. If you have a question, feel free to email us at lsq at redeemer.com or join us at Q&R on a Sunday morning. And now, back to this week's sermon. I don't know about you, but I know people in, your, in my life, maybe in your life too, people have said, I will be with you, but you still question the character behind that person. Uh, it's great that you'll be with me, but I'm not sure I really, really want you to be with me. So God gives a second thing. Right? Go back to the text. Moses says, who am I? God says, I'll be with you. Moses then says, that's nice, great, but um, suppose they ask, who is the person's name that is sending me? And this is the second thing God gives you. God gives you his name. In ancient times, names weren't just uh, uh, arbitrary things that your parents gave you. Names were connections to a larger story of who you were. It was a connection to, to your status and your character. And so look, look, go back to the text. What does God say he is in verse 14? He says to Moses, I am who I am. That's my name. And if that sounds weird as a name, it is. It's weird on a couple levels. First, um, there's no tense, actually, in Hebrew. So, when God says, I am that I am, it's, it could equally be, be, be said of him, I was that I was, and I will be that I will be. It's a way for God to say, I am not bound by time or space. I am omnipresent. I am omniscient. I am everywhere, number one. Number two, also with his name, this is the, the Hebrew word here is the verb to be. You and I use this word all the time, but when, I, when we say I am, we never just stop there. I am always has a modifier. I am Michael. I am tired. I am something. There's always a modifier. The fact that God doesn't do that, it's a, it was a statement of saying he doesn't need a modifier. He doesn't need to be attached to something else for us to understand his reality, to be defined. He's, he's undefinable by those things. When he says I am that I am, Therefore, God is saying, the verb to be, I will be, is inherent in his name. So when he says earlier, I will be with you, how do I know that? My name means I will be, dot, 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 and we can fill in also with you. Now, of course, you, if I was you, I would, you would push back and say, okay, fine, but that still doesn't tell me about his nature, his character. How do I know he will be with me? And this is where it's important that, to see that it, this is the first time, Exodus 3 is the first time that God gives his personal name in Hebrew for the first time in the Bible. It's the word Yahweh. In, in some of your uh, texts, it's the capital word Lord is a signal for the Hebrew word Yahweh. Last year, I had the honor of meeting uh, Princess Anne, who happens to be the second child of the late Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she's the sister of the soon-to-be King Charles. 
And I got to meet her with, um, it, was a, it was a great honor, but they told us over and over and over again, when you meet Princess Anne, you have to call her your royal highness. You cannot call her by her any other name. You can't say, hey, you, or what's up, or, um, you know, what's up, Annie, how you doing? You can't do that. You had to call her your royal highness, and if the late queen was there, you had to call her your majesty. And the late queen, by the way, had a nickname. Her, her, her nickname, I looked this up, was, is the name Lilibet, because when she was little, she couldn't pronounce her name Elizabeth, so she called herself Lilibet, and everybody, her f- immediate family members called her that. But nobody else could call her that, which, by the way, side note, this is why it's a little bit of a big deal when Prince, uh, um, what's his name, Prince Harry and Meghan Markle named their child Lilibet. It was kind of a big deal, but that's a digression. doesn't really matter now, but that's insider stuff. <laughs> like, wait, why do you get to call your your child, Lilibet, when we can't even call the queen Lilibet. Now, the point is this. Royalty, formality, when you call each other Mr. or Mrs., these formal terms are ways to keep distance. And God shows up and says, I'm going to give you my personal name. I'm going to give you access to who I am to bring us closer in. This is the opposite of a consumer vendor relationship. That's what most of our relationships are in New York. It's a transactional relationship. You give me this, I'll give you that. God walks in and says, no, I want relationship and access and intimacy. And the proof of that is, here's my name. And before this moment, God's name had always been in Hebrew, Elohim, and we, hear, we see it later. But Elohim is impersonal, it's formal, but God is saying, hey, here's how you can trust me. A, I will be with you. B, the very nature of my name is I will be with you. C, here's the personal version and proof that I'm going to give you inner access with Yahweh. I am that I am is not dependent on anything else, and so therefore you can depend on me. And so before we move on, will you? Will you depend on him? Will you come into his presence? Because if you're hoarding money, you know what? At some level, you're not trusting in his name that he's going to be generous. When we don't go out, when we don't tell others, when we don't serve, when we, when we stay within, when we protect and look in, at some level, we're not trusting in his name, are we? We're tr- not trusting that he's going to give, that he's going to be gracious, that he's going to be kind. So if you feel like you have to be an expert still before you love, before you serve, before you go and tell, I would say you're not trusting. You're actually, I would say you're actually going by a different name. Some of you in this room say you put yourself underneath the Lord's name, but you know what? You're actually living your life every single day outside of these walls by a different name. You have a, you, you, you have a, a, a name that people out there have, know you by, and then there's a name that people know you in here. But you have actually two names, do you not? You have your first name. You have your name, you're Moses or Mike and Sam and Sally and Susan. Those are good things. You have gifts and talents in that name, but... You also have a second name. You put your name underneath. It's Michael, son of Yahweh. It is Susan or Sally, daughter of Yahweh. And when you situate yourself in that space, when you have your name as his name as your name, it gives you an identity that cannot be shaken. Any other identity can be taken from you. It can be challenged. We're seeing this happen daily in our culture. We can see our identity uh, um, being, being torn apart, but this one gives us a foundation that changes everything else in our life. 
This is who he is. And by knowing who he is, we know more who we are. Now, last point. Fine. How is this a power? How does this, it's sort of the so what question. Why, did, why should we actually care about this? Go back to Moses. Does knowing God's name and does knowing that he's going to be with you, does that help Moses? From our text, it doesn't seem so right away, does it? Because he gets both those things in the very next thing. Look at verse 13. He says, please send somebody else. <laughs> Here's my name. Here's, I'm going to be with you. Yay, yay, yay. Send somebody else. And yet, I think we still have a hint in this text, do we not? If you zoom all the way out, we know that Moses wrote the book of Exodus, which then should make you think, wait a second, why would he talk about himself in such unfavorable terms? We know from most ancient writers, they tend not to look unfavorably on their own deeds. But Moses is comfortable to let everybody know for all time how much he did not trust and how much he did not care and how much he did not want to go. And I think the reason why this is that somehow, maybe over the years in Moses' life, there had to have been a change. It didn't happen immediately, but over time, through the years of knowing and seeing and experiencing God's name, that God is with us, he was comfortable to put this out there. And that's sort of the hint, that Moses was not afraid to show that God loves to use inadequate sources to do glorious things. The Bible is filled with inadequate people doing glorious things. Go back to Moses again, right? He's afraid of Israelites. He's afraid of of Pharaoh. He's afraid of God's plan for him. And yet this passage is showing us that God tends to use inadequacy for glory. That the less able the person is, the more we see who God really is. And this is, by the way, a theme over and over and over again in the Bible, right? Starting in Genesis, it's always the younger brother over the older brother, which is the reverse of how the world worked. It was Abel over Cain. It was Isaac over Ishmael. It was Jacob over Esau. When it comes to women, it was always the aged Sarah over young Hagar. It was Leah over Rachel. It was uh, the weak David over strong Goliath. Because the Bible is basically a who's who of the unclean and the unkempt and the, and the uncool because God loves the inadequate, the insufficient, the imperfect. I love it. I love the fact. It gives me such joy to know that Jesus picked probably illiterate fishermen to be his ambassadors, to be his apostles. Which means this, I'm positive they didn't really fully know all Jewish law. Heck, they didn't even fully know who Jesus really was. They didn't know his nature or purpose. Time and time again, they didn't understand him. I'm positive they had no idea of the intricacies of the Trinity when Jesus called him. In fact, who, who are these people? They're, Peter betrayed Jesus. Thomas doubted Jesus. And yet it was through these inadequate people, his glory goes out. And so here's the thing about this text. The message of this passage is great hope to us because the world says this, start with your resume. If you're a New Yorker, you, you know the world's constantly saying, show your, everything that you've done, who you are, what you've accomplished, so that you'll be accepted, so that you'll be in. And the Bible, if you read it over and over and over again, what you'll find is the place to start is where are you inadequate? Where are, are you not successful? Where are you not enough? And those are the people you find in the Bible. That means you're most qualified when you realize that you, you never were qualified. That means that you don't have to be an expert to be in. 
The thing that's freezing us, that's, that's giving us paralysis to, as a church to know how to go out on mission, to know how to go out and love and serve and go and tell, at, is because I think at some level, the reason why we don't share a testimony, the reason why we don't do these things, that there's always an excuse of time, of, of, of tiredness, of I can't do it. It's because we still feel like at some level I have to know enough or be enough or have enough. But the disciples didn't know everything, and that's so good, such good news because therefore you and I don't have to know everything. Only when you realize all you need is need, only when you realize that all you need is really nothing, ultimately, that you're not asking to be anything more than what you really are, will you actually come to him? And that's the question I want to ask you. Will you? Will you really come to him? The world says get blessing, right? Go off. Spend not, you're, you're 24 hours a day, at least six days a week, maybe seven days a week, trying to get power, approval, comfort, and control. The problem with that is that those things will become curses if you actually ever get them. We you know why? Because they'll never be enough. Or you'll do what most people do in this world, which is you'll, you'll never get them, and so you'll just die trying. But Christianity shows up here and says, actually, if we're with God and He's with us, then you, actually, you can have what the world calls curses. Rejection, suffering, bad health, pain, suffering, and sadness, but received with God, those things can turn into blessing. You say, how's that possible? It was because thousands of years after this time, there was a person who showed up whose name embodied the idea of God is with us. Emmanuel means God is with us. Jesus Christ is the ultimate example of God using weakness and rejection to bring blessing. When I was in middle school, I grew up, I was growing up here in, in the city. Uh, I think it was when I was a Boy Scout, and we went to go see the Army-Navy football game up at West Point. And it was great because I think it was either beginning or at halftime, there was this big plane that came by, and there were there, all these soldiers were parachuted out of the plane and landed precisely on the 50-yard line. And everybody was clapping and, and, and cheering, and, and I was like, that, that's an entrance. And a, a couple years ago, there was the, that Superman reboot where there's that plane that's coming straight down into, that's going to crash into the stadium. Everybody was going to die. And all of a sudden, at the last minute, Superman shows up, stops the plane, lands in the outfield. All the cameras are on. All the video is on. People are clapping and cheering. The whole world instantaneously knew that, G, that, <laughs> knew that Superman was back. <laughs> knew that Superman was back. See, that, see, I would say that's the way Jesus should have showed up. And yet, how does he show up? He shows up in a manger, unlooked for, unkempt, without notice, in poverty, without fanfare. And how does he die? He dies without a family around him. He dies without friends around him. He dies with just the, the shirt off his back in infamy. And yet, if you go to John chapter 8, verse 58, what you'll find there is Jesus saying this phrase. He says, before Abraham, I am. I always find it fascinating when people say Jesus never claimed deity. Go to John chapter 8, verse 58. And he takes the very name that God gives of himself here, and he claims it his own. And if that's true, if Jesus is now the ultimate example of weakness and rejection that brings blessing, then the good news for you and I is that God can use the weakness and rejection in your own life to bring blessing too. 
And if we're really armed with that truth, if we really live in that truth, I know the world, I know New Yorkers, I know we're all trying to be acceptable and and have this great resume, but armed with this truth that we are in and accepted via rejection, even inside our own, then there's nothing that can scare us anymore. There's nothing that can stop us. There's no reason for us to be able not to go out, to be sent. Because Exodus, and we're going to see this as we keep going through the series, Exodus is about freedom, but real freedom comes by being sent, and you can be sent by knowing who he is. And once you know who he is, then you know who we are. You say, well then, okay, who is he? You need to know who he is is most evidently found on the cross. There's this great video that shows up sometimes in my feed. It's a um, sermon by Alistair Begg from years ago where he puts this more vividly than than I could. He says, very simply, he goes, how do you know that you're going to go to heaven? I mean, it's a very simplistic idea of of heaven, but how do you know you're going to go to heaven? And if the answer that you state, ask yourself that question, if if the answer that you state is anything like, it's because I... It's because I believe. It's because I have faith. It's because of what I do. He says, you're wrong. That's not it. That can't be it. If your answer starts with, because I, you're wrong. That's still what, it's still what you have to do. That's still living by your identity and your resume. And he says, the best way to understand this is look at the thief on the cross next to Jesus. Imagine, pretend you're talking to him. You sit down with him and you say, hey, how did you get to heaven? How did you get here? And you start talking to him, you say, hey, did you, how many Bible studies did you do? He'll say, none. None? So he's saying, well, well, you were baptized, right? No. Wasn't baptized. Well, you went to church. What's that? He didn't live for the early church. And you start saying, wait a second, how did you get here? How did you actually come in here? He'd say, I don't know. What do you mean you don't know? I don't, I don't know. Well, let me ask you, do you understand justification by faith? What's that? <laughs> Do you understand? Like, you're here, but do you, do you believe in Jesus? What's that? Then how do you know that why you're here? Why are you here? And his answer is going to be this. I don't know any of that. All I know is this. That man on the middle cross said to come, and so here I am. That is the basis of why we are here. But is that the basis why you are here? All I know is the man on the middle of the cross said to come, That's the only answer. We have to remember this because he said so. He did it. He loved that thief on the cross, and he loved you. And if you don't understand anything else but that love, that's all it takes to bask in the joy of Jesus. That's all it takes to be able to be sent, to to rest in that. It's when you place yourself inside his love, our worries of being an expert about being enough diminishes. And I'm not saying you're not going to have doubts. I'm not saying you're not going to have times of, of, of worry and questioning. Of course we will. I'm saying that once you're pulled into his love, that's when you know most are going to be able to love. That's when we're going to feel confident and be able to be sent out. So are you ready to come into his presence? Have you been able to answer the question of why are you here? And it's because of him. As as the hymn goes, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. 
Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You and I will most know who we are when we realize who he is. And when you do, we will go. And I am looking forward to doing that together. I'm looking forward to being that church that does this. But will we listen? Will we put ourselves inside his name? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for Moses' account. Thank you for his writing about himself, of his inadequacy, of his lack of believing in God's adequacy. It's so humanizing, and we can see ourselves connected to this man thousands of years ago, seeing our own selves searching, wanting, desiring. But Father, I just pray, I pray that we will place ourselves inside your name. Help us to trust in you, that you will be with us, that I am that I am is one that we can stake our lives on. Help us to connect our lives to you. Help us to see that, help us to say, not because of I, but because of you, and to live in light of that here in New York. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We pray that it's a helpful resource as you process aspects of Christianity and grow in your faith. To learn more about our church, including details about Sunday worship, check out our website at RedeemerLSQ.com.